0: Hey, people. It's the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Raleigh from Atavist, and I'm joined by the Longform guys, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer.
2: Hey, guys. Hey. Feeling that hate people intro. Hey. ho. hate party people. Uh, Who did you talk to this week, Aaron? See, I almost had to throw it to myself there, but I, I, pulled, I pulled the brakes at the last second. I talked to Jonathan Shannon from The Caravan, which is a... Um, Indian Magazine I think one of the only um, publishers of, of uh, features long feature material in, in India and English um, he's an interesting guy um, I mean just running a magazine out of Delhi is. didn't he also run one out of like Abu Dhabi he also ran a magazine out of uh, Abu Dhabi um, so some really good good stories in here um, if you want to send out some good stories yourself you might need a newsletter from the good people at MailChimp comes tiny letter a simple powerful way to send an email newsletter thank you for your support Take it away, Aaron. Hello, Jonathan Shannon. Hello, Aaron. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm very good. Uh, welcome, uh, welcome to America. Thank you. Um, for people who aren't familiar with it, uh, Jonathan is the editor of Caravan, which uh, I have heard described as the Indian New Yorker. Uh yeah, I am Do you do, do you like that description or do you uh
0: Well, I should I should as a point of clarification, I said I'm I am senior editor at the Caravan. Senior They're, editor yeah, at are, the there uh, are two people above me. Okay. Um but uh in practice, we're a harmonious team and, you know, tend to do things together and I am definitely the person who puts the pen to the paper. Um I, you know, the New Yorker of India uh yeah, I like that. I mean, I it's the easiest way to explain what it is, and I think both to Indians who have not heard of it, or to people here who are asking me, like, "Well, what kind of magazine is it? What are you guys trying to do?" It's. A, I find it to be a very functional description.
2: So let's let's uh, let's rewind, um, yeah. because as far as I know, you're the only American. You're the only American I know that's editing a magazine in India. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in how you ended up editing a magazine in India.
0: Well, yeah, it was a bit of an accident. I'm, um, I came to India three years ago. Uh, I had been in Abu Dhabi, and maybe we'll come back around to that. Let's 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 Start double rewind here.
2: How did you come to edit a magazine in Abu Dhabi?
0: Well, okay, so there I was working in a newspaper. i I think the best way to tell this story is to, you know, fade into to, <laughs> uh, you know, the offices of the New Yorker in i don't know maybe like september 2007 uh and i am sitting at my desk in the fact checking department and i get an email from a guy in abu dhabi who was a former new york times reporter at the time he was still with the new york times totally out of the blue basically saying hello i'm starting a new newspaper in abu dhabi and some people have recommended you we're looking for a culture editor and I, what I learned later, I guess, was that a few people in New York had mentioned me as someone who was, like, kind of interested in the Middle East and had kind of a background in— I had worked at The New Yorker. I had worked uh, as Bob Silvers, as one of Bob Silvers' assistants at The New York Review, um, you know, someone who had a kind of culture literary kind of bent. Um, so I took a job working for The National, which at the time was launching. So I got there in December 2007. And the paper launched in April 2008, and my job, which wasn't really defined before I moved out there, came to be creating and then editing a kind of weekly magazine within the newspaper. We had a little front of the book. We had kind of an op-ed page. We would do one cover story every week that was usually about four or 5,000 words, and more often than not was you know long-form reporting. Sometimes it would be an essay. Um, and then there was a lot of kind of books and arts coverage. So, you know, we would have three or four long book reviews. What, what is
2: in somewhere, someplace like Abu Dhabi, what, what does books and arts mean? And
0: and what are you covering there? Well, we took a pretty broad view of that. I mean, when, when I came there, I think my thought was, okay, what do people here have in common? You know, our readership is reading in English. It's not an Arabic language paper. So I sort of thought, well, okay, most of the people here are from somewhere else, they're interested in the Middle East because they live in Abu Dhabi, or they're interested in the Gulf, and, you know, I took it to be sort of like, all right, we need to be sort of internationally minded, you know? And I thought about, okay, how does, like, an American publication look outward at the rest of the world, where, you know, maybe New York or London is kind of like the center of that world? And, and the subjects that the magazine or the newspaper is interested in, you know, vary based on their proximity either to the interests of the home country or to how far away they are. You know, so if you're in America, you know, you certain things are interesting in Mexico, certain things are interesting in Iraq or Afghanistan because we have troops there, things like that. So my thought was like, all right, how do, you, how do you flip that on its head and put Abu Dhabi at the center of the world? And you don't necessarily write about Abu Dhabi because most of what's happening in Abu Dhabi is pretty boring. And we're also attached to a newspaper that's covering the UAE right. you know, seven days a week. How do we sort of rethink, you know, we, we're we going to be writing about a lot of the same books that you'd be reading about in a paper here. But, you know, maybe we're going to pass over things that, you know, we're not necessarily going to do, like a new Martin Amis book. Or, you know, um, we're going to pay extra close attention to fiction by Arab writers, Indian writers, Pakistani writers, African writers— um, and similarly for the journalism, I feel like I tried to think about like what's close to us. So we did a lot of Iraq; yeah. war was going on then. We did a couple Afghanistan pieces. We covered the rest of the Middle East, you know, Hezbollah, Egypt, stuff like that. Um, but then also I tried to think about again like what are the issues and themes that are really relevant to life here.
2: Were you able to write about, like, the slave labor? Like, it's interesting because everything you're describing, I'm like, I don't know if I would read the, like, Abu Dhabi review of books, but I would read the Abu Dhabi uh, review of slave labor in Abu Dhabi.
0: We, We wrote about it a fair bit. I mean, you had to... You had to walk a line there. Um, You know, we were, you know, the paper was owned by the government. You know, you need a license in the UAE even to run a newspaper. So if the government doesn't like what you're doing, they can shut you down whether they own you or not. So um, we wrote about local issues in a, in, in the, the mandate was kind of do it in a sensitive way. So don't go looking for trouble, but you don't have to hide that this stuff is going on. So we did um, one of the best pieces we did in Abu Dhabi, and maybe the piece that I'm most proud of actually was by a writer named John Gravois, who now works at Pacific Standard out in California, um, new new uh, magazine. Yeah, I've um, been, hear- been hearing a lot about that. And he profiled a woman who we wanted to write about remittances and about you know this economy that you know the Philippines, Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, these places that are basically kept afloat by or regions in these countries that are kept afloat by workers in the gulf sending money home and he found a filipina woman who her job was she was like a remittance agent so when like a new crew of workers would come into town she worked for like a for like a money transferring firm she would go kind of befriend them And kind of rather than waiting for them to come, like, downtown to deposit their money, she would go to them. And she developed these, like, amazing relationships with all these people. And she knew all these guys by name. And she would help their wives get visas to come visit. And, you know, so we did stories like that, which were, I think, examinations of that world. I think we tried not to moralize about it, which I actually think in some ways—I'm not a defender of the UAE, but I think in some ways is not— you can't write about it like an outsider, you know. You have to you have to be sensitive to the cruelty that is often inflicted on people who come to do these jobs. But you can't just sort of like stand at a remove and say like, "No, this is not good for you. You should go back to your home country." You know.
2: So when um, what what brought you away from uh, Abu Dhabi? Well,
0: yeah, I. Um, the unvarnished story, which I guess I've told enough now, is just that basically I kind of fell out with my editors. They There was a change in management at the newspaper. They wanted everything to be shorter and cheaper, and so they cut the budget for my section, and they you know we used to do 4,000 words on the cover every week, and they were like, from now on, no story can be longer than 2,000 words. Um, I mean, the idea of the Abu Dhabi paper originally, which I think is so amazing, is like, I, I think was this sense, sort of reverse logic, where someone in Abu Dhabi said, great cities have great newspapers, and we want to be a great city, so we have to start a newspaper. I mean, it's very old-fashioned, I think, reverse causality way of thinking. And, uh, you know, there was a sense that this section that I was running was going to, you know, be an ambassador for the newspaper outside of Abu Dhabi. And then they just lost interest in that, you know. Um, so I decided, okay, I'm, you know, I've been, it's Abu Dhabi also like a tough place to live. I mean, it's,
2: yeah, I was going to say, I mean, what, what was your life like while you were
0: there? I, I mostly worked all the time. It was really like being at camp in a way because we all, it was a very strange experience. I mean, someday someone who I worked with will like write a novel about this. They, we all lived in these buildings that the company had either bought or I guess the company had rented out the whole building. So you had these kind of like 200 foreigners, mostly westerners, some arabs and south Asians who had all moved to Abu Dhabi to work for this newspaper. We all knew only one another at least for a while and we all lived in these buildings together, you know. So you'd have like a fight with someone at the office. If you had a fight with someone at the office, then you'd like come home and see them in the lobby of the building, you know, because you lived you like lived in a dorm. But I really enjoyed being there. I mean, I I think the experience of Working in an environment that's foreign and where you have to kind of think through a lot of things from the ground up—I um, mean, I, this has been my experience in India too. I find it to be really stimulating, I guess, to have to to have to interrogate. I like you know the assumptions that you have as an editor about like what's interesting what's not interesting what's what's a good story what's a bad story what's the story that's been done a million times already I feel like when you get out of a place that is your place which for me and you is America or New York you have to kind of think through some things in a fresh way um, and I think that can be really productive.
2: What brought you from Abu Dhabi to uh, Caravan is in Delhi?
0: Caravan is in Delhi. Basically, I was ready to leave Abu Dhabi and I started talking to friends and trying to find out what other options were out there. And I really liked being away. I mean, I had, at that point, I'd been gone for three years and I felt like I just like, wasn't ready to come back to America. Um, I think journal I think work here had started to pick up again um you know, I missed like the real bad years um, but i i you know i know I guess I had like this bug for for like being an editor abroad, and I had gotten to be really interested in India because again, going back to this sense of kind of how do you what does the world look like when you put Abu Dhabi at the center of it? India looms very large there, both in terms of it, the size of the country, the size of the population, the proximity to the Gulf, and then, of course, the fact that you have a large Indian population in the UAE. So some friends of mine put me in touch with people at Caravan. And, this is
2: after uh, going on high It is a historical publication. Yeah, so it had,
0: it had been—it um, it existed from, I believe, 1940 until 1988, Um, I've never actually read a copy of the original run of Caravan. It was totally, as far as I know, it was totally different. It's been described to me as being, like, a little, like, Reader's Digest or something, but I don't even know if that's true. I think it was a literary magazine in the sense that I think it probably published a lot of, like, poetry and short stories and things like that. And the grandson of the guy who founded it, so it's part of this family business, which is called Delhi Press, uh, it was founded by this guy, Vishwanath, in 1940, um, if, uh, You or any of our listeners have read uh, Naipaul's third nonfiction book about India, which has the most amazing title ever. It's called India, A Million Mutinies Now. Um, There's a chapter on this guy, Vishwanath, who started the company. Um, So he passed the company to his son, uh, and that guy's son is my boss. He came to the U.S. to do a master's at Columbia, and as I understand it, um, this is Anant, you know, fell in love with Harper's and The New Yorker and The Atlantic and came back to India and was like, hey, like, why, why don't we do this? And what do you know? My company is in the magazine publishing business. We'll have a go at this. So he started it, I think it was it was a bimonthly for a while. And then in, in the beginning of 2010, it got a kind of re-relaunch in its present form, you know, once a month with this kind of narrative journalism angle to it. Um, So when I first got in touch with them, they had just done the relaunch and basically said to me, look, if you, you know, if you end up moving here, get back in touch with us. And by six months later, I was pretty much just ready to go to India and I called them up and, you know, they said, all right, we've got a job now. It's very serendipitous. Um, I mean, I feel like I was incredibly lucky to like find, here's like the one magazine in this whole country that does exactly what I love.
2: So what? Tell me about what the like that first month in India was like. I mean, immersing yourself and it's a pretty pretty big shift.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I had so you know, the you know I mentioned before that I'm the senior editor. Um, above me there is Anant, who's our owner, and then my sort of direct boss, who is you know in practice is kind of my partner. Um, is a guy named Vinod Joes, who has done some of our biggest stories. He's a journalist. He, you know, I learned an enormous amount about Indian politics and Indian media from him, and we'd sit and talk together for hours and hours every day. Um, Basically, I just, it was like drinking from a fire hose. I, you know, got there. I subscribed to like six newspapers. I subscribed to every magazine that comes out. I mean, like the four or five kind of weekly magazines, And I just started, like, reading and reading and reading. Um, I learned an enormous amount on Twitter, which sounds ridiculous. But I I think what I was interested in was kind of, you know, first you want to get to grips with the facts. I mean, I read books, and I looked at histories and things like that. But I feel like as an editor, you really want to get at this kind of, like, meta layer that's like, how do people talk about what's going on? Like, I know what's going on, but, like, you know, what are the jokes people make about this politician or, like, what is the reputation of this thing or this party or this ministry? Um, And that, I think, you it's just sort of this osmosis. You have to just, like, take in a volume of information. And at the beginning, you don't really know what you're going to do with all of it. But you kind of think, okay, well, I'll, like, join up the dots later. And then I think, for me, what made it— possible or, or what was I was lucky I guess was that it was my job to do this stuff so I would have a kind of overview knowledge of something and then we would do a huge piece and I would then have to really in order to edit that piece to be working with the reporter to be sort of doing the fact checking as I edit the story and to be doing the like you know kind of heavy editing that we do I would have to learn you know maybe not everything the reporter knows but like I wanted to know as much as possible um, so I would read the transcripts of the interviews the reporter would do. I, sometimes I'd read books about, you know, the po- you know the politics of Tamil Nadu or something. I, mean, I felt like I just wanted to know enough so that, often driven by kind of fear of embarrassment.
2: How, how do you sort of, I mean, how do you manage a, a country the size of India and the number of stories that are, that are coming out? How, how do you keep a handle on that?
0: In some ways, it's, an, it's, it's just an extension of, I think, the problem of just magazine editing generally. I mean, I, I have my sort of, philosophy, if if that's the right word, of what it means to be a magazine editor is that you start with this blank thing every month, you know. I mean, if you're doing this kind of long-form stuff, if you're a monthly magazine as we are, there's nothing you have to put in the magazine. You know, we're not covering stuff Um, in a way where I feel like if you're, you know, you're the editor of a newspaper or something – You got a pretty good sense of what's going to go in tomorrow's newspaper because you know what happened today. So I think you start from the sense of like, okay, what's compelling enough that that it's worth six thousand words, and then what's the six thousand word story that a, a, a reader, someone who's not like a fanatic for long form journalism, a reader is going to be like, whoa, I need to, I got to read this. You know, so maybe like one of the things we've tried really hard to do has has been to be pretty topical in terms of. Picking subjects that we think is sort of like, okay, this is news that's going to stay news. Because it it takes us four or five months to do a story sometimes. So, you know, you want to know when you send out that reporter in December that come May or June, either the subject is important enough or that what you're going to unearth is new enough that it's going to feel when it comes out, someone's going to be like, holy shit, I got to read this. You know, my line that I now have, like, the people who work with me now, I think we all kind of repeat it as a mantra, is like, you know, there are two things for us. One is this idea of, like, we're going we're gonna to do three stories a month for 12 months a year. So when a story idea comes up, it's like, is this one of 36? We're like, we got 36 slots here, and is this story that we're talking about worthy of being one of those 36? I think the other thing... And this comes, I think, in some ways with this question of, like, what do you do from, you know, local or regional subjects is, like, why are we doing this particular story, you know? So all over India, for example, there is, like, massive environmental despoiling going on, you know, mining, power plants, forests getting cut down. I mean, it's kind of—you could go to pretty much any place and you would find someone breaking the law or bribing an official or, you know, dispossessing— indigenous tribals from their land to mine it but you can't write all those stories you know and there's there's a kind of sameness about them if you keep writing them over and over again so it's kind of you're looking for you know we have a story coming up that is about um people use this word in india tribals or adivasis is what they're sort of native inhabitants of the land they're you know indigenous peoples um And these are the people who have borne a lot of the brunt of kind of the rapid development of the last two decades. And there's a community of these people in Maharashtra, actually, um, where they're really isolated. And the district that they're in has the highest rate of death due to starvation in the entire country. And uh, we have like a grant that we were doing with a nonprofit, an NGO, where we were kind of, you know, funding reporting. You know, we'd get like, you know, these people would kind of top up the cost of what it would take for a reporter to go to a story. So I've had a guy who's been back and forth to this fairly remote place like six times, you know, and gotten to know these people and, you know, spent a lot of time with them. Um, and there I feel like, you know, corny or not, the hook is like, this is the worst place. You know, this is the place that's number one. So at least like you can, there's something to sell it with. Um That sounds really crass, but, but I, I feel like that's, you know, when we're talking about like doing a piece on a politician or, you know, doing a piece on a movie star or something like that. It's like, okay, well, why this guy? You know, like we need to be able to answer that question. You know, why are we doing this story instead of any of the nine fairly similar stories we could do?
2: Who is the writer who who you're sending to this area six times, and and who are the people who write for the caravan, and how do they how do you develop talent?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, this is the hardest thing I think because there's not a pool of freelance writers. I mean, you can't make a living in India as a freelance writer. Um, I mean, we don't pay that much money, and and we can't we can't even keep you that busy. I mean, if you you know if you were like really devoted to writing for Caravan, maybe you do four stories in a year. Um, the guy we're sending to this area, this place, it's called Melgat, um, is a guy named Anosh Malakar, who is a newspaper reporter um, who's based in Pune.
2: So in terms of you, uh, Caravan, being the only more long-form English language out, will it, um when you have writers coming from a newspaper environment or coming from a shorter magazine environment, and you're assigning that first five or 10,000-word story, are you like, um, you know, here's a stack of Xerox John Lee Anderson stories. Please study these. How how do you how do you guide someone through writing their first feature?
0: Yeah, we do a little bit of that. I mean, I definitely I give people a lot of New Yorker stories. Um, I feel like you have to not just give someone a story; you have to kind of tell them how you want them to read it in a way. Um, I mean, there are a couple of stories where. Um, I latch on to these weird things, particularly in The New Yorker. Like, You know, it's like it's no use to give anyone like a David Grant story because unless you're writing a story that has a David Grant story plot line, yeah. reading David Grant is not going to help. You yeah, know, it's there, probably going to mess you up. Actually. Is there a
2: twist in here yeah. where like, yeah, a, unless a act, murder enters the narrative <laughs> yeah. more than two-thirds of the way through? Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, Unless Act 3 of your profile has like a shocking reveal, then yeah. like you don't need to... But, you know, I've been... Um, You know, this is like an odd... And I latch on to weird things. Lauren Collins, um, who I like a lot and who I once worked with at The New Yorker, um, did this profile of April Bloomfield, the chef at The Spotted Pig. Uh, And I don't know that that's... I mean, I like that piece a lot. I'm not sure that it's like a masterpiece. But it has a great kind of first thousand words where uh, there's a fantastic opening scene and Lauren has just like packed in an enormous amount of background information while she's narrating the opening scene in a way that's very unobtrusive and doesn't seem forced and so I have you know on like nine or ten occasions like given this to someone and said like don't read this whole piece but like look at the first section of this story and how all the all these different kinds of material come together how there's like okay there's kind of live scene being narrated and there's the author's voice and then there's background information and then there are quotes happening and Trying to like show people how you build you know how all these different elements you have to have in a piece. Um so there's a lot I mean, I spend a lot of my time, whether it's with the staff writers who already work for us or it's with new people who are doing something for the first time, it's like a huge amount of my job is just talking to people. And I, I really like that actually. But it, it's I sometimes feel like, you know, I'm like teaching at a journalism school, uh, which is great actually. Um, you know sitting down and trying to kind of get a writer to see the piece the way that I see it or the way that I think I might see it and trying to like it's like a mix of like high concept sort of like okay here's how you want to think you know, like telling people things like okay like I want I want time to pass in your story you know, like, I want your story to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and I want there to feel, I want it to feel like time passes within the universe of the story. Um, I want there to be a real mix of, you know, live, you know, kind of scenes, background, quotes, your observations, parenthetical assign, you know, kind of, i I have all these dopey metaphors that I use with people, so I often talk about how you know, imagine you're like building like a shack out of like detritus and very you know you're gonna like need a little bit of tin and a little bit of plywood and like a window and kind of you know um, or I make drawings for people i have I have a like a ridiculous repertoire of absurd uh kind of like pictogram, um, my favorite of which involves an island. so I will like sit with a reporter. I don't know why. And, and I'll draw this stupid island on a piece of paper. And I, you know in the island metaphor, the, the conceit is that you are marooned on this desert island. And for some reason, you have to make a map of the island. I don't know why. Um, as a way of sort of explaining my sense of how the reporting process for a piece like this should go. So I will tell people, you know, okay, well, so you're making a map of this island. The first thing you're going to do for the first two or three weeks is you're just going to, like, walk around the perimeter of the island. You're going to, like, draw the coastline. And you're going to get a sense of what's in the island or what's on the island and what's not on the island, you know. And then, like, once you've got that down, you're going to sort of subdivide the island into kind of grid squares. And then you're going to try and figure out where do I need to just sort of cursorily pass over an aspect of the story and where do I need to go really deep, you know. Like, where is going to be that one point in my finished story where I'm going to have, like, a tight TikTok of, like, what happened on the critical day or you know, what was the chain of events that led up to, you know, someone's resignation or, you know, and it's trying to get across to people, like, how do you, how do you gather the information you're going to need to get a story that has the feel that we want? And I think that my guess, I don't know what it's like, I've not done this here, but I think, you know, here people have a bit more of an intuitive sense of that. And if you're dealing with someone who's never written a story like this before or has maybe only done one or two... um I feel like this kind of coaching, uh, you know, saves you a lot of time at the end, you know. But but you have to get it. What I find is that even people who read The New Yorker don't necessarily get what goes into making a story like that. This is where, for me, I think in a way, like being a fact checker was like an amazing job.
2: Who are your readers? I mean, how how much do you know about them?
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, we get a... (sighs) A lot of our feedback, I think, comes from social media, and we, I mean, it's funny, you know, we're a kind of old-fashioned magazine in that, you know, it's print and it's monthly and it's edited in a very laborious way. Um, social media has been huge and hugely important for us. I mean, I think um, I leave it to others to probably say how much the reputation of Caravan has grown in the last couple of years, um, But I think whatever that growth has been, it's been really heavily driven by people reading stuff on the internet. And, and, you know, when we do a big piece, um, I hate this phrase, goes viral. Um, And now people have started to use this as a verb, like it viraled. I had a story viral. (laughs) Um, I've seen this in Indian publications. It drives me crazy. Um, When we do a big, big story, you know, and some of these are like, you know, like the Probably the first really big story maybe we had in terms of web readership was this profile of Manmohan Singh, who's the prime minister. Um, And that's like a super unsexy story. I mean, this guy's on TV every day. I mean, he's he's the most, depending on who you believe, arguably the most powerful person in the country. Many people would say he's not. Um, But, you know, structurally, he's the head of the government. Um, And that was like, you know, Vinod spent like six months, (laughs) interviewed like 60 people who had known Manmohan like across his whole life, and that went up online, and it just, like, spread like wildfire. People were like, oh, my God, you got to read this. It was, nothing like this has been done before. Um, so it's – you know, the reason I bring up Twitter is because I think – or Twitter and Facebook is because that's how I get a sense of who's reading stuff. But I feel like it's a little dangerous because it's like – It's like that, like, old joke where the guy's looking for his car keys under the light, under the lamp light, right? And the cop is like, did you lose your keys here? And he's like, no, but here's where the light is. Um, You know, like, Twitter tells you something, and so it's tempting to think that it's the real— like, because it's a metric you can see, Yeah, um, it's tempting to think that that's the whole universe. Do—when
2: you—when a story sort of starts circulating on Twitter like that, and— I'm thinking of there was a, a cricket story a, a year or two ago um, who was, like, sort of a veteran guy, and then he got involved in organizing elite, the league or something.
0: Well, so the the big one we did, which you guys actually very nicely picked as, I think, a top ten of the year uh, in, under the sports category, was yeah. about this guy Lalit Modi. Yes, that's yeah. the one I'm like,
2: sorry. Max is our sports editor, yeah, but I, so, did, I did read that.
0: So this guy created this new league, which was playing this, like, short form of cricket, and... Yes. Um, it was like a massive spectacle, celebrities, after parties, cheerleaders, which don't really go with cricket. Um, and then he got caught up in various scandals and basically had to like leave, left the country actually.
2: And so when a story like that, does that reach a wider swath of India? Not, not simply in the, in the sense of traffic, but in the sense of, oh, this is the kind of person I would not expect to read The Caravan, but because this is a cricket story or whatever, this this can go further. Yeah, I mean,
0: I don't know if it's cricket. I mean, people are as obsessed with politics as they are with cricket to a degree. Um, I think that's definitely right. I mean, I think that, like, the core, you know, there's a kind of core Indian Twitter sphere to me, that probably is popular. I don't know. I don't know all of these people, but I imagine it's like fifty or one hundred thousand people at most, you know. Um, and it's interesting because India is, a, you know, it's a big country and people are really spread out. Um, so I, I think, am I not to sound like Jeff Jarvis or something like that? But I, I think that the, the, there is a way in which the web has been um, transformative because there is a kind of discussion that can now be had among people who are you know, one guy in Bangalore and one guy in Bombay and a woman in Chennai and someone else who's in kind of rural Rajasthan and a woman in Kashmir. And, you know, these are people who wouldn't have talked to one another previously for geographic reasons, among others. Um, so, you know, there there's like, yeah, a core group of people who I think, you know, every time we do a big piece, they'll be tweeting it. And I think it's definitely the case. And I'm kind of like relentless. I'm a relentless monitor of like, in, you know, like, i have like, constantly refreshing the, like, who's posting links to our stories on Twitter. Um, I think when a, the bigger the story, yeah, the ripples are wider, you know. And so it, it, it's going to get out to people who've never heard of Caravan before. Um, these tend to be political stories. I mean, I think the... I feel like the opposite is true in the U.S. Like, political stories have the shortest reach in the U.S. Yeah. Well, see, part of it, I mean, again, part of it is, like, politics is a big spectator sport. I also think that we, um, you know, have, have, have a, a bit of a this kind of brand with these political profiles where, you know, People will almost—sometimes I'll, I'll see people share them in a very sort of, like, informative, like, hey, you've got to read this to know about this guy. This is the story that's going to tell you everything about this controversial politician.
2: If I asked an Indian person who read The Caravan, do you have, like, you know, you would say, The New Republic, this is a liberal publication, The National Review, this is a conservative publication. Is where, where is Caravan on the political spectrum?
0: Um, that's a hard question to answer. Um, I think Caravan is— is a the Indian political spectrum is a little different. So I think Caravan is a secular publication, um, which is a word that has a sort of specific valence in India. Um, you know, I would say that it's a it's 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 a it's of a liberal inclination. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I um, I started my career or whatever one calls it. My first job <laughs> was at the Nation. Um, I was an intern at the nation. I worked for Alex Coburn, among other people. Um, and, and I loved it, but I inculcated or it, 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 it put, it gave me like an allergy to like polemical political writing, which I now loathe and I find really, really tedious. So I, yeah, one of the biggest pieces I think we've done was this profile of Narendra Modi, who is the chief minister of Gujarat and uh far and away the most controversial politician in India and one of the most popular politicians in India and and someone who is seen as the most likely candidate for the BJP the right leaning party to be the prime minister to be their prime ministerial candidate for 2014 and uh you know Modi is a guy who just like controversy swirls around him he has like avid fans um and you know Rabid detractors or rabid fans and avid detractors, however you want to think about it, um, and that was a piece where you know, um, in terms of the politics of it, my goal as the editor was to play it as straight as possible. Um, you know, his his the 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 one of the reasons why he's so controversial is because shortly after he became chief minister, which happened at the end of two thousand one, um, there were these riots in Gujarat in two thousand two. Uh, I think one or 2,000 people were killed, most of them Muslims. And the controversy about him has, you know, in large part circulated around whether he was aware of this, complicit, did he not, you know, step in soon enough to stop the rioting. And I think, you know, for me, the goal was to produce a piece that— would be read by both sides of the issue. The people who love Modi hated the piece, um, or most of them hated the piece. Um, But, you know, just not to moralize, to kind of just to play it straight, basically, you know. um, I mean, I think, you know, we have a broadly liberal worldview, but I don't want it to seem like we have an agenda, I guess.
2: What is your what is your day-to-day life in India like? What what, what is the life of a magazine editor, uh, an American magazine editor living in India?
0: Um yeah, I um I spend a lot of time at my office. I mean, I don't I live in South Delhi. Um I live by myself in like a small it's like a sort of small house. Um I wake up in the morning, I eat breakfast. Um I try to eat breakfast. <laughs> I uh Take an auto rickshaw to work. Um, except in the summer, I in the summer I take the metro because it's too hot to be outside. Um, so I, you know, I walk out of my neighborhood probably, you know, ten minutes. Um, you know, I get in an auto rickshaw. Uh, I got to negotiate with the guys every morning. What, what
2: is a, What does a ride to work in an auto rickshaw cost?
0: Uh, so if they ran the meter, which they don't usually, it's ninety five rupees, which is a little less than two dollars. Um, my sort of personal limit is 150 which is about $3. Um, guys will want to charge. You know, like a, you pay a kind of white man tax, right? People look at me, and they're like, all right, yeah, that's 500 yeah. you know, um, which is like five times the normal price. Um, I like to smoke in the auto rickshaw on the way to work, so I kind of prefer that to the metro. Um, and then, you know, I get to my office. Caravan office is pretty small. We have probably about 15 people in the office.
2: What is your social life like? Um, you know, it's mostly, uh,
0: mostly people who I kind of, either people I know from work. I mean, I feel like, um, there's a hammy line that I've used many times before and I will now use again that, um, you know, I'm not an Indian, but I am an Indian journalist, um, which is stupid, but also true. I mean, I work at an Indian magazine that's read by Indians primarily, Um, so most of my friends are other journalists. Um, some of them are writers I work with, like Samanth. Um, some are people who work at, you know, other newspapers or, you know, they're freelance writers. Um, you know, it's, I mean, I've gotten to know like a lot of people. I mean, I, I feel, Delhi has gotten to the point now, and Delhi is a small town. I mean, it's 20 million people, obviously, but like the sort of like literary journalistic Delhi can be a small town, you know? So if I go to, um... You know a few weeks ago there was a little party for Mosin Hamid who was coming through town to uh, you know launch his new book um, and I you know I go to a party like that and there are like 50 people there and I know 40 of them because they're just like it's not that you know it's not a big place has it
2: been strained for you to, to make a life in India I mean do you do you date in India
0: How- um, well I know I haven't I mean I might have uh, you know, I have a girlfriend who lives in America Um no, it's not really. I mean, people, you know, I think um, it's not that weird to be, I, I don't know how to describe this. I mean, it's, it's. I'm hyper-conscious of being an outsider in a way. I, um, for a long time, refused to write anything about India. Um, people would ask me and I would say no, mostly because I was afraid I would embarrass myself somehow. Um, I'm really conscious of sort of not wanting to be the guy from the outside who comes and stands in judgment and, you know, says, like, here's what I think is going on. And, you know, it's like, I have strong opinions about aspects of how the Indian media works. Um, And, you know, sometimes I'm vocal about that stuff. But at other times, I feel like, okay, it's not my place to, you know, like, you, you never want to be like, oh, I'm the white hero who's come from outside. I mean, people will, I've heard, people have said to me, you know, it's so great that you've brought this journalism to India. And I'm kind of like, no, no, that's, I didn't bring anything, you know, like I'm a good editor and I do my job, but you know, it's not, I didn't, I didn't introduce this, you know. Um, what's it like reading? I mean, do you read, um, it's a
2: terrible example, and I'm thinking of like, um, Catherine Boo's book, um, came out this last year and, um, you know, a fair amount gets written about India by outsiders and is read pretty widely in America, and I think it's probably a lot of people's sort of primary impression of India is from it. W- what is it like when you when you read those outsider accounts?
0: Well, I mean, it's yeah, the quality varies. I think. I mean, I tr- I'm probably nastier about some of this stuff than I should be. I think I have a reputation among other foreign journalists in Delhi as being like that guy on Twitter who's going to say that your piece was bullshit. Um, or who's going to make fun of you when you write a story about monkeys in Delhi, um, as if that's news. Um, Kate Boo's book, is, I think, is like a masterpiece. And, and I mean, I wrote a review of that for Book Forum. I, I think um, the level of commitment that she put in and the sort of like... I, that to me is like a is like a it's what I want everything to be like in a way. I mean, it's just sort of like relentlessly focused on telling a small story, not on crying to sort i mean it's like that's not a book that's about like drawing conclusions from stuff. you know it's basically about like here's the way this thing is. I realize that's an illusion to a degree, but um you know I think that um some writers come, and often I think maybe this is driven by with the perceived needs of the news desk, you know, back in New York or back in London, um, with a kind of preconceived storyline. Um, and they go looking for stories that validate the storyline or that, you know, are notable because of the storyline. Um, I think the people whose work I really appreciate... Um, are people who are much more open just to kind of, like, learning from India and kind of immersing themselves and just letting things be what they are, not— it's a sort of idea that—I think it defines a lot of journalism, actually, that, like, things have to be emblematic of something else, you know? So when you do a story in The New York Times about Dharavi, which is the big slum in Mumbai— it's, it's, it's not, it's not about Dharavi, it's about, like, the idea of slums, you know, Um, and I feel like one of the things that's great about Kate Boo's book is that, like, it doesn't try to be more than it is, you know, it's like, it's a microscopic and very precise portrait of this very specific place, Um, and I'm sure there are bits in the book where, you know, Kate ventures a bit beyond that and, you know, draws some conclusions, but it's not like, it's not making an example of anything, and that's what I find irritating. You know, is is this attempt to kind of like take some singular thing and kind of construe it as like, oh, this tells us everything we need to know about India.
2: It's interesting because my next question was going to do that exactly, which was was to ask. So you've been in India three years now? Almost um, three years, yeah. Are you, I mean, do you see changes in India? Like so much of what's written about India is sort of about the New India and how quickly things are evolving and, and so forth as someone who has been there not for a long time but long enough
0: has Delhi changed in your time there um, I don't know that Delhi has changed exactly and I'm not I mean I'm not someone who like spends a lot of time like out on the street right I mean I take my auto rickshaw to work and back um, there's huge swaths of Delhi that I've never set foot in I mean Delhi's like an enormous city um, what has changed I think uh, so I'm really interested in what I think of as being sort of like the elite or kind of middle-class Anglophone discourse, which is basically like what you read in the English-language newspapers, what people talk about on TV, what people in South Delhi talk about over their dinner tables kind of stuff. And I think the storyline that I'm interested in is that um, there was a great deal of optimism among this class in the late... 2000s, maybe like through kind of 2008, 2009. The economy was growing really fast. India seemed to be kind of earning a new level of respect on the world stage. Um, And that has kind of slowly and steadily unraveled from kind of 2010 onwards. Um, and you can mark I mean, if you're paying close attention anyone listening in India will appreciate this that you know it started with the Commonwealth Games, which came to Delhi in 2010 and were you know everything was like not done on time, and the buildings were falling apart, and then all of these officials who were involved in planning this thing ended up in jail for corruption. Um, And kind of from then onward, it was sort of like scam after scam after scam. um, And the economy started slowing down. And you had the rise of this big anti-corruption protest movement um, that really galvanized a lot of middle class Indians um, who were kind of like, you know, mad as hell and not going to take it anymore, so to speak. Um, So I think there's like a real... I don't know. There's like I mean, it's not despair exactly, but I mean, there's this like sense of kind of like promise betrayed, um, and I think it's curdled a bit. I mean, I think there's some some corners of this elite um, or this kind of upper middle class uh, that are really angry. I mean, the, the the government of the day, which is headed by the Congress Party, um, is truly loathed by a lot of people. Um, and in some ways that loathing is totally justified because it, the government is incompetent and it's corrupt. Um, I sometimes wonder whether the level of incompetence and corruption is sufficient to explain. I mean, I think like there are things that are wrong that can't all be pinned on the government. Um, but I think that anger is like a new thing, you know, and, and I think it it reflects, again, this sense of like, What happened? We we believed that this economic boom was going to kind of wash away, you know, caste discrimination, for example, you know, or you know, gender violence. Gender violence was not so much an issue back then. Violence against women. I mean, that's been a post, you know, since January of this year when it was a huge, you know, Delhi rape case.
2: Is this something you can see yourself doing for a lifetime?
0: I don't know. I mean, it's—the um, answer is probably no. Um, I mean, I don't want to leave. It, it. It's, like, the most fun I've ever had. It's also—I'm a little burned out. I mean, it's not uncommon to, you know, sleep at the office for three or four nights at the end of the month. Um, I think it's, like, the greatest place to be. I mean, I think it's an insanely fascinating country. I think it's a place where um, the kind of work that we are doing and that other journalists are doing is really appreciated. Um because we're filling a niche that was not previously occupied. Um, you know, I mean, I think you you, you, know, you come back. You, you know, I think if you started Caravan in America right now, no one would care. You know, there's like no—I mean, maybe some people would be into it, but, like, there's no shortage of this You'd kind of— You'd be like in a warehouse in Bushwick. Yeah. Like... <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so, you know, on the other hand, I think— I, yeah, there's a limit, I think, to how long you can be in another place and and how— you know, maybe, maybe it's a question of sort of deciding for me personally, like, okay, do I want to, do I want my life to just be here? Um, Or, or at some point, do I want to think about like, okay, I need to come back and figure out what it is I can do in America. Um, You know, I think that as far as I'm concerned, like Caravan is like a never ending project, you know, I can, you know, I think we've come a long way. But every month, I feel like, all right, we can make next month better than last month was. And is it? Is it
2: self-sustaining? I mean, if, um, if that auto rickshaw crashed, um, is, 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 it, is it running on its own, or, do, or is it being pushed by you at this point?
0: No, it's never been pushed by me. Um, we are we have, we, you know, the story in terms of kind of personnel in the last couple of years has been that as the reputation of the magazine has grown and the circulation has grown and the ad sales have gone up, um, you know, we're still not making money as a standalone entity, I mean, the, the, right? The company that we're a part of makes money on its other magazines, um, but we have expanded the staff. You know, we've been able to. You know, when I started, there was, you know, basically in terms of the editorial, you know, there was Vinod, there was me, there was a copy editor, there were a couple of like people who just like had worked on specific sections, and there was one staff writer who had was like an intern who had been promoted up to being a staff writer and was being paid like peanuts. Um, this is Mebub, um, who I think you guys, you put up a couple of his, he did this great story about the, uh, these, uh, Kashmiri guys who went over to Pakistan to fight in kind of the insurgency against India and then got stuck there uh, and have now started to sort of dribble back. Mebub is a great reporter. Um, and, and one of these people who's just like this really driven young guy, he's probably like 28, 29, um, who has a real skill, I think, at like getting people to trust him, Um, so we've added three more staff writers, we've added three more editors, you know, it's, 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 it's increasingly starting to feel more like it's kind of like a real institution where, you know, there's like a hierarchy of people doing different things. That seems, seems like as good a place as any to taper off there.
2: And thank you very much, Jonathan Shannon, for coming in. Cheers to you! Thank cheers you. Cheers in here. This is fantastic. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Uh, my co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Our fantastic sponsor is Tiny Letter from the good people at Mailchimp. We'll see you next week.